You're listening to Weird Medicine with Dr. Steve on the Riotcast Network, riotcast.com. I've got diphtheria crushing my esophagus. I've got Ebola virus dripping from my nose. I've got the leprosy of the heart valve exacerbating my incredible woes. I want to take my brain out and blast it with the wave, an ultrasonic echographic and a pulsating shave. I want a magic pill for my ailments, the health equivalent of Citizen Kane. And if I don't get it now in the tablet, I think I'm doomed and I'll have to go insane. I want a requiem for my disease, so I'm paging Dr. Steve. Dr. Steve! It's Weird Medicine, the first and still only uncensored medical show in the history of broadcast radio, now a podcast. I'm Dr. Steve. And this is a show for people who would never listen to a medical show on the radio or on the internet. If you got a question, you're embarrassed to take your regular medical provider. If you can't find an answer anywhere else, give us a call at 347-766-4323. That's 347-POOHEAD. Visit our website at drsteve.com for podcasts, medical news, and stuff you can go. Or go to our merchandise store at cafepress.com slash weirdmedicine. Most importantly, we are not your medical providers. Take everything you hear with a grain of salt. Don't act on anything you hear on this show without talking it over with your doctor, nurse practitioner, physician assistant, pharmacist, chiropractor, acupuncturist, yoga master, physical therapist, or whatever. Okay, very good. Uh, Don't forget to check out stuff.drsteve.com for all your holiday uh, shopping. There's still time. Just um, You go to stuff.drsteve.com, and um, uh, just at the top there's a banner. You can click through there, or you can scroll down and see – Items that we've talked about on the show before and uh, buy them directly from there. But it's really got a click-through site. You can click through to Amazon. Uh, don't forget tweakedaudio.com. There may be still t- time to get some stocking stuffers. Some of the best earbuds for the price on the market and the best customer service anywhere. Tweakedaudio.com. Use offer code FLUID. That's F-L-U-I-D for 33% off your order. That's a huge deal. Offer code FLUID at tweakedaudio.com. Don't forget Dr. Scott's website at simplyherbals.net. And um, let me talk to you just for a second about premium.drsteve.com. So um, if you had a subscription to the premium service and you haven't signed up in the last week or two, you don't have it anymore. And uh, the reason for that was if you remember, you know, a couple of weeks ago I went through a – I just said, yeah, I'm going to get rid of everything. So I got rid of everything. And then that included the premium service. So um, if you don't mind, go back to premium.drsteve.com and sign back up again. And uh, if we get up a, above a certain threshold, I'll put something special on there for you guys. And I, I do appreciate it. And um, it gives you access to all the archives uh, going back to the beginning. So premium.drsteve.com. So, um, oh, I guess this is our holiday um, uh, edition. We're going to talk about um, aspirin and primary prevention and head lice and all kinds of stuff. So very uh, holiday. I, I just don't plan well. But, that you know, after however many years we've been doing this, I guess you're well aware of that anyway. Um, yeah, Dr. Scott's not here, so F him. Uh, P.A. John hadn't been here for years, so F him. Hope you all enjoyed uh, the uh, show last week when we did something different. Um, we had Dave Ray Cecil in. You can check him out at DaveRayCecil.com. Uh, 
or, um, uh, you know, you can listen to it on demand. It was awesome. And uh, I was an audio engineer before I went to medical school, and I was quite pleased with the quality of the recording that I did on him, uh, given that it was all live in studio. So I was uh, quite pleased with myself. But anyway, I um, wasn't so pleased with the levels. I could, never could get Dave to, you know, he's one of those music guys. They like to get back far back and yell into the microphone. <laughs> it was uh, So we had to do some normalization. Uh, and it was still every once in a while his levels when he was speaking were low, but God, when he was playing and singing, it was awesome. So anyway, check it out. You can also go to my YouTube channel uh, uh, where I have his um, uh, songs indexed, and that's at YouTube.com slash Lobster Johnson. So um, anyway, it's L-O-B-S-T-A Johnson, all one word. Okay. Uh, check out Dr. Scott's website at simplyherbals.net. And don't forget to listen to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And uh, let's answer some medical questions. Don't take advice from some asshole on the radio. That's exactly right. Thank you, my friend. Well, all right. Hey, for the podcast, please. Hey, Dr. Steve. Uh, I'm a healthy non oh. He wanted this for the podcast. Um, that's okay. We'll, we'll we'll do it on both. Overweight, fifty-five-year-old guy with borderline cholesterol readings at about two hundred total. No heart attacks. I exercise. I'm not fat. Uh, I was taking low-dose aspirin for years on my own, hoping that it will help my arteries stay clear. Then I read a lot of stuff saying we shouldn't do this for various reasons, so I stopped taking it. Um, now I'm getting a little freaked out that my tubes are getting all gunked up. So if low-dose aspirin helps prevent clotting and keep your arteries from getting all gunked up, isn't that a good preventative measure for a lot of people, assuming you don't have any other issues with it? Uh, thanks. Yeah, if it did that, it would be. Um, the only things that really prevent um, arteries from getting gunked up uh, you know, chronically are ge- good genetics. And that's something you can't do anything about. Um, and uh, diet, exercise, and keeping your cholesterol down and not smoking. So uh, <clears throat> the fourth way that you can, you can even reverse some clots uh, without a cardiologist going in and, and doing them, you know, with a balloon or a drug-eluting stent uh, would be um, – you know, with a statin drug. And I'm glad Dr. Scott isn't here because I'd have to deal with him, you know, rolling his eyes when I say that. (laughs) Statins are the only drug that have been, you know, continuously demonstrated to uh, reduce plaque uh, accumulation. Notice I say the only drug. There are other ways to do it. Uh, and uh, to maybe even uh, have plaque regression once these plaques start. The problem with statins uh, are multifold. One, you have to treat about 90 people to prevent one heart attack. So the, in, the, the uh, benefit to the individual is going to be pretty small. The benefit to society is great if you could prevent one out of every 90 heart attacks, given the number of heart attacks in this country. That's a non-trivial number. But uh, you can work out 
the uh, the numbers from the package insert. Maybe we'll do that sometime as a special episode. Just do the math and show you how it works. But you take uh, the absolute risk and uh, you take the inverse of the absolute benefit and that will give you the number needed to treat. So uh, well, I can just kind of run you through it. We've done this a couple of – maybe once or twice before, but it's been a long time. So you hear this, oh, you know, people who take statins, 35% reduction in heart attacks, right? Or whatever the number is. It doesn't matter. So let me show you how that could be constructed that, um, that would have minimal impact on the individual. So let's, con- let's take a drug. doesn't have to be a statin, just any drug. We're going to call it drug A. And it has some benefit for people. And let's just say, we'll just throw this out here. Hypothetically, it prevents heart attack. It doesn't matter. It could prevent prostate cancer, colon cancer, whatever. So you take 1,000 people and you give them drug A. You take another 1,000 people and you give them a placebo, whatever uh, you know, placebo A is. And a placebo should have no effect, although we know the placebo effect is so powerful that we have to subtract it from every study that we do. So uh, uh, we watch these people over time, and let's say out of these 1,000 people, 10 in the placebo group had the bad event, a heart attack, for example. And in the active treatment group, only seven had um, a, um, a heart attack. Well, that's a 30% reduction. You can say, well, there's a 30% reduction in heart attacks, but you can notice that uh, the vast majority of people, 990 people, even in the, in the placebo group, did not have a heart attack. So the absolute risk is going to be a lot smaller, right? Or the absolute benefit, you can look at it a couple of ways. Um, uh, so uh, there will be a uh, – so it, since the denominator is the same, we can just subtract these. So you had 10 in the placebo group. You had 7 in the um, treatment group. So the absolute benefit was three people out of 1,000, okay? Now, if you take that three out of 1,000 and inverse invert it, you're getting 1,000 people. Well, three people you know, um, were prevented from having a heart attack. So you would, in this particular group of numbers, you would have to treat 1,000 divided by three, 333 people before you prevented one heart attack. Okay, does that make sense? So that is the number needed to treat in this hypothetical, you know, uh, fantasy world trial that we just did. So when you do that with the um, uh, stat numbers, it's around 90 for primary prevention. And then there's secondary prevention. That secondary prevention is where you've had a heart attack, you're trying to prevent another one. But we're talking right now about uh, preventing um, a um, heart attack primarily. So this guy's calling in. He's been taking aspirin. So the first thing I would have anybody do that's interested in this is to uh, go uh, just Google Framingham uh, cardiac risk, and there's a calculator. So let's say um, this guy said his cholesterol was around 200. So let's say he's 45, and he's a male, and he let's say he is a smoker. We'll just make this even worse. And his total cholesterol is 200. We have no idea what his HDL cholesterol is, so I'll say it's 50. That's his good, so-called good cholesterol. 
And uh, I can't remember if he said his blood pressure is okay. Let's say it's normal. So 120. And uh, that he's uh, – let me listen to the beginning of his phone call again and see – let me uh, – let's just get all this right. Hey, for the podcast, please. Okay. Hey, Doc. Dr. Steve. Uh, I'm a healthy, non-overweight 55-year-old guy. Oh, 55. With borderline cholesterol readings at about 200 total, no heart attacks. I exercise. I'm not fat. Uh, I was taking low-dose – Okay. So let's change his age to 55. He didn't say anything about his blood pressure. So let's just say it's normal that he's not taking blood pressure medicine because he didn't say anything about it. His um, 10-year risk of heart attack is 11.6. That's if he's smoking. Now, let's just change it to non-smoking and watch what happens. Drops down to 5.9. I say it at the end of every show, quit smoking. It doubles your risk of heart attack. Okay, again, this is a relative risk, but uh, he has a 5.9% risk if he's a non-smoker. So if he is a smoker, it's 11.6, non-smoker, 5.9. The average 10-year risk of heart attack or death in his age group is 13%. So, uh, you know, he's in pretty good shape. So let's look, there's this thing called the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force. And you can go to it, it just put in US Preventative Services Task Force.org. And this was their final recommendation statement. But I'm going to tell you when I, when I tell you this, it may not be up to date, okay? Because they do lag behind the uh, data uh, for a good reason. Uh, so they recommend adults aged 50 to 59 years, that's this guy. With a greater than 10% 10-year cardiovascular risk. So you got to do these Framingham things. Uh, if he's a non-smoker, he's uh, 5.9. He doesn't even fall into this group. But it says the USPSTF recommends initiating low-dose aspirin therapy for primary prevention. In other words, preventing the first heart attack. And to prevent colorectal cancer. Isn't that weird? Aspirin, you know, people say, well... Why are you giving morphine for for trouble breathing? Well, why do we give aspirin, uh, you know, for arthritis, but it also prevents colon cancer? It's just two totally different things. They, these medications have more than one effect. Um, so in adults age 50 to 59 years who have a 10% or greater 10-year cardiovascular risk, uh, who are not at increased risk for bleeding, because that's the problem with uh, – uh, aspirin, of course, is it increases your risk of bleeding and to have a life expectancy of at least 10 years and are willing to take it for at least 10 years. So you got to meet all these criteria. If he's a non-smoker, he doesn't even meet the first criterion, which is he's got to have a greater than 10-year cardiovascular uh, risk. Okay. If you're age 60 to 69 years, like I am, with a greater than 10, well, let's do mine. Hellfire. It's my show. I'm 63. Um, uh, I'm male, non-smoker. My total cholesterol, okay, and my systolic blood pressure last time I checked it was a little elevated at 140. Um, now, if I put in my medi- my cholesterol numbers on a statin, where my total cholesterol was 120, my risk is 7.4, but I can't take the statin anymore. So it was 200 last time I checked. My HDL cholesterol was 60. 
So I've got a 9.9% risk. If my HDL cholesterol was 50, it'd be 11.6. So let's say it's greater than 10. We'll just, let's, let's go with that. So the decision to initiate low-dose aspirin use for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease and colorectal cancer in adults aged 60 to 69 years who have a 10% or greater 10-year cardiovascular risk, let's say I do, should be an individual one. Persons who are not at increased risk for bleeding have a life expectancy of 10 years, I hope so, and are willing to take low-dose aspirin for 10 years are more likely to benefit. Okay, so I probably should take it. Persons who place a higher value on the potential benefits than the potential harms may choose to initiate low-dose aspirin. Well, okay, so that's the USPSTF. Well, there have been some um, uh, new studies done on aspirin. And, uh, you know, we've known for decades that aspirin can prevent recurrent heart attacks and strokes, which, as we said, is secondary prevention. There was a lot of mixed data, and the USPSTF went back and forth on this stuff. Um, in September, there was this uh, thing called the ASCEND trial, A-S-C-E-N-D, if you want to look it up. Looked at aspirin for primary prevention in 15,000 patients with diabetes. So these are people at high risk for cardiovascular disease. And uh, there was a modest benefit in terms of reduction of cardiovascular events. There was a fairly significant increase in the risk for major hemorrhage. So that was uh, strike one. I'm getting this from Medscape. Strike two was the ARRIVE study, a randomized trial of, uh, these are large studies, 13,000 patients with moderate cardiovascular risk, that'd be me. Aspirin had no effect on all-cause death or the cardiovascular outcome. So they may have had heart attacks, but didn't change whether they did well or didn't do well. And it didn't change the uh, rate of dying from all causes. And that's the thing we want, is uh, we really want to see things um, stop us from dying, you know, or at least give us a better quality of life. Then uh, strike three came in the form of a trio of papers published in the New England Journal of Medicine, examining the results of the pri pri previous trials. And, um, and uh, this uh, ESPRI trial was a huge study enrolling 20,000 individuals in the United States and Australia. And it was targeted at people over 70. And these people would be expected to be at higher risk for cardiovascular disease or death. And the primary outcome, remember we've talked a bunch on the show about primary outcomes – uh, uh, you know, we have secondary outcomes like, for example, for statins, a secondary outcome or endpoint would be lowering your LDL. Well, you got to prove that every time you lower the LDL, you're decreasing heart attack and stroke because that's what we're really interested in, right? If I had a medication that tripled someone's bad cholesterol but decreased the rate of heart attack and stroke by 30%, I would give them that. So uh, LDL is, you know, it's a marker. It's not a perfect marker. Well, the real marker of whether a statin is doing you any good is does it prevent you from having a, a debilitating heart attack. Anyway, so uh, uh, the primary outcome was composite of death, dementia, or disability, which so they incorporated what most of us would consider quality of life into this. And uh, to they were trying to capture the fact that in the older population, simply living longer is not always the only goal. 
So let's see what they said. Let's go to page two. Uh, aspirin had no effect on the primary outcome, but then they got weirder. Looking at all-cause mortality, the rate was higher in the aspirin than the placebo group. Now, why would that be? Well, they may have had more hemorrhagic strokes and stuff. Uh, now, the absolute mortality rates were really low. Again, we just talked about relative risk versus absolute risk, relative benefit versus absolute benefit. Uh, for every 100 patients you treat with aspirin, you'll see one extra death over a five-year period. You know, um, so anyway, so they published their second paper in the journal looking at the causes of death. And the findings were driven by, holy crap, cancer. Um, the rate of new cancer diagnosis and death from cancer was higher among those taking aspirin compared with those on placebo. And this runs counter to much of what we we know. And might this may be a, a, a factitious result. Remember, death wasn't the primary outcome in this trial. And, uh, you know, because this was a secondary outcome, it needs to be studied separately as as the primary outcome. And then we'll see. This, this may just be a statistical anomaly, particularly because we know for a fact that aspirin helps prevent um, colorectal cancer in people that are at high risk for colorectal cancer. So, and again, one study doesn't prove anything, but uh, it's very interesting. So I suspect the USPSTF may um, amend their recommendations in the future. We'll see. For now, if you're taking aspirin, don't stop it. If you're not taking aspirin, don't start it on your own. Talk to your primary care. All right, let's move on. Hey, Dr. Steve. The other day you told us that you were going to be canceling the podcast and the radio show, and that made me really, really sad. Uh, that entire week I was not able to produce an erection. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> uh, no matter how many fucking pecos I was sucking on the hand of my hand. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now you flip the script and you're telling us that the shit's staying around. And I swear to God, Dr. Steve, I haven't had an erection last this long in forever. Uh, it's been going on two weeks now and the thing hasn't gone down. Um, you excite me too much, Dr. Steve. What do I do? Thanks. Bye. We'll get a, we'll get a blow weight, my friend. That's the answer to that. It's very easy. Very simple. Empty out those seminal vesicles. Thank you for the kind words. That's um, where I am really. Boy, I, I'm, I'm so glad that um, we were able to figure all this out. That I um, um, am getting new. Uh, I'm, I'm going to completely redo the studio for the long term. So we're going to be in this for a while. Assuming that SiriusXM will let us come back and Riotcast will let us come back. But uh, that's that's the plan. So uh, redoing the studio, hopefully we'll be able to do some live shows over the next year till our uh, till our um, contract is up in October. And then it'll just be up to Jim McClure at that point if he wants us to continue. So I hope we do because we uh, really uh, like being here and we like uh, being on Riotcast. So. All right. Boy, now I'm pretty sure my five-year-old has head lice. 
got little eggs and little bugs in there and dust and big bugs and big eggs. There's oh fucking goodness. chicken on her head. But anyway, what's the best way going about addressing this situation? Is it best to just go to the pharmacy, get the over-the-counter crap? Or is there something better I should use, something that I should know about, or should I take it to the pediatrician? Yeah, okay. Um, you can you can treat this yourself. They're a head lice are just tiny insects. They feed on blood from the scalp. It's crazy. And uh, we have a medical name for it. It's called pediculosis capitis. And uh, for some reason, kids get it more than um, than adults do. And it's uh, pr- usually because of direct transfer. So you see these kids at nap time in kindergarten, and they're all laying with their heads next to each other. Uh, the lice uh, can easily jump from one place to another and start breeding. It's absolutely nothing to do with hygiene or the living environment. These dang kids just get it, and they just pass it from kid to kid. But there are over-the-counter medications and prescription medications and also some sort of more natural ways to do it if you're if you don't want your kid exposed to chemicals. Um, you may notice this, uh, your kid, uh, may have an itchy scalp. You may notice the lice. You may notice the, the lice eggs. What these things do is they'll, they'll plant their eggs on the hair, hair shaft. And those aren't the lice. Those are called nits and they're actually little egg sacs. And, um, um, you know, the, the louse life cycle is that these darn things will hatch after eight or nine days. So if you kill all the lice but don't kill the eggs, it'll come back eight or nine days later. So, um, you know, and they can only jump. I'm sorry, they can only crawl. They can't jump. And uh, uh, so anyway, all right. So what do we do about it? You can go to your pharmacy and pick up a bunch of different things. Uh, There's a thing called Nix. It's Promethrin. It's a, um, uh, uh, you know, it's a chemical that kills these things. They have other ones uh, with additives. Uh, they'll um, increase the toxicity, and it really does increase the toxicity for the lice, but not for your kid in theory. Um, there's a bunch of prescription versions. There's ivermectin. There's malathion, lindane. Uh, that one has a risk of some severe side effects, and so it's not really used anymore unless everything else where it doesn't work. <clears throat> so you can get all those. Just talk to the pharmacist or your pediatrician about it. If you're interested in not using a medication, you can do an alternative home treatment. One is called a wet combing. You use this thing called a knit comb. This is uh, very tedious, but um, can be successful if you get all the nits and the lice. Um, you know, a lot of the research is kind of inconclusive on this one, but you know, for ages, we did this before we had the chemicals. Um, you lubricate the hair like with hair conditioner, and then you comb the entire head from scalp to the end of the hair at least twice. It should be repeated every three to four days for several weeks. This is like, you know, we talked about, um, for nail fungus, you can use Vicks Vapor Rub. But you got to use it every day, twice a day for 48 weeks. So it's kind of a pain. But uh, uh, there are essential oils that you can use. Uh, tea tree oil, anise oil. Um, the, the problem with this is these oils 
are often meant for um, use in nebulizers and and uh, you know to to smell them, and they're not regulated by the FDA. So I am a little leery of this. If you've got somebody that you feel is uh, reliable, uh, you still have to use the knit comb though, and then you can smother the damn things. Um, we've seen people use mayonnaise, olive oil, a petroleum jelly. I'm not a big fan of the petroleum jelly. Uh, if it gets inhaled or gets into the kid's uh, respiratory tract, it can actually cause a uh, petroleum type of pneumonia. But mayonnaise, you plop it on there and um, you uh, uh, glob it on their hair so that it basically smothers the thing. Now, remember, lice don't have lungs. They respire through holes in their joints and stuff. That's how they get oxygen in. So you have to uh, smother them for a long, long time. And uh, so a lot of people do this and then put um, a shower cap on. And then after 15 minutes, then you comb the lice through. The problem with this is this has been actually studied in the laboratory and only petroleum jelly was effective in killing a significant number of lice. And I've already told you, I'm, I'm not a big fan of that. Uh, very little clinical evidence that this stuff works. So uh, hot air, stuff like that. Um, you know, the other, uh, so I, I got to be honest with you. If it were my kid, I would use the uh, over-the-counter RID for this and just follow the instructions. I've never seen any studies showing any significant toxicity with those medications. And you can just buy them over the counter. Talk to the pharmacist about it. Now, uh, if they're not on a scalp and feeding, these eggs really don't survive. Uh, uh, the chance of them surviving on household items is really small. However, if you've been sleeping on a pillow and there's lice in them and you're going to sleep every day, that's within the time they can still live. So we do recommend that you uh, clean uh, personal items that you might touch, particularly pillow cases and uh, anything in the previous two days. And wash them in hot water and uh, clean all your hair care items. It could be combs because if there's a knit in there and the stupid thing hatches, um, you know, it probably takes more than one. I don't think these things can – Reproduced by parthenogenesis, meaning uh, you know asexual uh, reproduction, but they uh, certainly, uh, if you get three or four of these things or three or four hundred of them on your comb uh, and wipe wash it through your hair after you've gone to all this trouble, you can get it again, and um, you know give the floor and the upholstered furniture a good vacuuming, and you should be okay. Uh, I've seen people go bonkers after getting head lice where they just strip the beds and they uh, wash everything and they wash all these clothes in boiling water and then they're washing the upholstery and, and you don't have to go that crazy. Just remember these things. After 24 hours of not feeding on your horrible scalp, they will die. Okay? So keep that in mind. All right. Well, Hello? Well, that's, that's not a good phone call. Let's try that again. Hey, Dr. Smith. A uh, question for you about hemorrhoids. I've had a, a fissure uh, for a few years. It was actually diagnosed uh, about a year ago. Um, the proctologist had put me on um, a suppository that I think had zinc. 
um, and a few other ingredients like, uh, uh, I think, shea butter. Um, and he also gave me a, uh, a cream to apply twice a day that was hydrocortisone and also, a, uh, uh, I guess, a pain reliever in that. Um, it didn't work at shrinking the fissure. Um, it hasn't really gotten any worse or better over the past year. I was just wondering what, um, I guess, procedures are available if, uh, you know, topical creams aren't doing the trick. Thanks. Yeah, no, it's a great question. <clears throat> so topical creams a lot of times uh, will attempt to decrease inflammation. That's the, uh, the purpose of the hydrocortisone and uh, may try to uh, shrink these things using uh, – you know, uh, vasoconstriction, decreasing the blood flow to these areas. But when they don't go away and you still got them, particularly, look, if you have a thrombosed external hemorrhoid, uh, these are, um, they look like a, a grape stuck on your rectum or on your anus. And uh, they're intensely painful. And basically what it is is a hemorrhoid that has um, gotten a blood clot in it and it expands because blood uh, will can get in now it can't get out and the thing just starts to blow up and those vessels don't like that fe that feeling of stretching so the um, uh, you'll get an intense pain signal being sent to your brain those need to be surgically excised so basically I, I've gone through the procedure before since GVAC is no longer here uh, I can't gross him out with this so I'll just tell you all very quickly you just numb it up. And you cut a oval in it and uh, uh, extract the um, clot and then uh, pack it with gauze uh, or pack the ass crack with gauze. And um, most of the time that will completely relieve the pain and then the, that hemorrhoid will involute over time and just uh, scar down and go away. Now, if you have multiple hemorrhoids, you see these people sometimes it looks like, uh, I don't know, like a you know a cluster of grapes hanging out of their ass, uh, but they're droopy grapes. It's not an attractive sight. Uh, those folks uh, can have surgery, and you would have a hemorrhoidectomy. And um, there are some internal hemorrhoids that are uh, 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 amenable to being removed uh, with a little scope. That they um, this is kind of a cool thing. So uh, the the um, Proctologist, and thank God for them, unless somebody wants to do this job, uh, will uh, visualize the hemorrhoid. And if it's on a stalk, they can use a tube that's got a tube within a tube and it's got a rubber band on the end of it. So one tube, of course, if it's inside the other tube, has got a smaller caliber and then it's protruding, let's say, a quarter of an inch. And, um, and then you have the larger tube. Uh, uh, you know, back a quarter of an inch. And then on that piece that's sticking out, you put a, a rubber band. And now you thread these long, really thin forceps through all the way through this tube. And when you find that hemorrhoid, you grab it with the forceps and pull it into the tube, right? And then you push the outer tube over the inner tube, and then that will force the rubber band down, and it will uh, gr now grab the base of the hemorrhoid and it will just cut off the blood supply to it and it will die. So in about four to five days, you will defecate out a uh, dead hemorrhoid. And uh, this usually is painless and uh, no bleeding and usually no problems. If uh, they 
uh, uh, get it a little bit too too much mu- mucous membrane, sometimes you can't get an injury of the um, uh, of the wall of the rectum that can cause inflammation, may even cause a fistula over time. I've seen that maybe once in my career. I don't know what the incidence is, but talk to the proctologist about it if they're talking about doing this to you. Okay. All right. Well, all right. Hi, could someone get a very high reading on testosterone, something like 2,000 on total? And the free testosterone can be really high also. Can it be like a false reading? Can the lab either mess it up when it seems like everything else on the blood work is pretty accurate? Or have you been taking something like methylprednisone a week before he took, you know, the 21 tablets over a six-day span and he stopped about a week before? Could that mess it up or could there be some underlying thing? Okay. So um, he's asking about... Elevated testosterone, we talk about low testosterone all the time on the show. So he's got um, uh, a hypothetical case of a person with a testosterone level of 2,000 with the normal being 350 to 850, depending on the lab. So uh, what could cause this? The first thing you do when you get an uns- a very surprising result in a lab test is just to repeat the damn thing because it's unlikely – if there's a lab error or, uh, you know, just something transient, that it will be that high again. So you repeat it. Let's say they repeat it and it's again 2,000. Now uh, they got to look into this because um, there can't uh, – uh, and, and the person to dope this out would most likely be a, an endocrinologist. Endocrinologists are, are uh, medical doctors who specialize in problems of glands. And uh, this could be a lot of things. And one surprising thing that it could be is um, uh, hyperthyroidism. There is a case of a 48-year-old guy who had a markedly elevated testosterone. They did a CT scan of his abdomen and pelvis and pituitary. didn't show any tumors that could be secreting testosterone or tumors that could be secreting other hormones that could cause you to produce elevated testosterone. Uh, But what they did find was his thyroid was completely out of whack. His thyroid-stimulating hormone, if you remember that from um, a few uh, episodes back, was markedly low, meaning that his uh, testosterone was high. And uh, Sorry, that his uh, thyroid hormone was high. So they treated his hyperthyroidism, and his testosterone level came back to normal again. Now, this is the kind of thing that really an endocrinologist is best at dealing with. So, uh, Because the other things that it could be are uh, so-called adenomas of the adrenal glands. Those are benign, quote-unquote, tumors um, that uh, you know can secrete either testosterone or precursors that get turned into testosterone. And then uh, there can be um, uh, adenomas of the pituitary gland, which would – secrete hormones that would increase the testicles' uh, uh, propensity to uh, make testosterone and end up with an elevated testosterone level. Or there could be uh, tumors that produce testosterone itself. So I would not fart around with this. I'm assuming if you know that your testosterone – if uh, you know, I'm in this hypothetical case, 
that that person got their testosterone checked for a reason. And when it was that elevated, the primary care doc about crapped their drawers and immediately called an endocrinologist and got that person in to get seen. All right. Hey, Dr. Steve. Uh, I was just listening to your podcast that you aired on December 1st, I want to say. I'm a week behind. <laughs> anyway, you were talking about nipple piercings. and um, this- Okay, yeah. So let me get you caught up on this. Um, we were just talking about nipple piercings, how, number one, it seems very uncomfortable. And number two, does it enhance anything for the woman or for the guy? Um, I know people that have them and they love them and I'm just want to know what it is. Cause you know, if I'm, uh, um, you know, nuzzling on a nipple, I'm not sure, I'm, you know, getting metal in my mouth and clicking against my teeth is really sexy, but that's me. I'm just a weirdo and I'm old and I'm old school. So I want to know what these, what these kids today are talking about. So here you go. Might be weird. I'm not really sure. But anyway, you said something about wanting to hear from other people about nipple piercings. Well, um, I had mine done for probably a year and a half, I want to say, give or take a few months. Um, anyway, I had them done, but I ended up having to take them out. But while I had them in, personally, I liked them. Um, I liked when someone, well, for the sake of <laughs> this, you can say uh, it. my current husband would, <laughs> you know, lick them or whatever. I personally thought it felt better than nothing at all. Um, and I asked him, I said, well, you know, does it feel weird for you or, you know, like, do you not like it or does it aggravate you? He said he likes it too. He would prefer it. So, um, yeah, that's... And yet you had them removed. I want to know that story. You need to call back. Um, about it, and I hope y'all have a very Merry Christmas. Yeah. All right. Well, you too. And uh, happy whatever holiday you happen to be uh, celebrating when you're listening to this. So, yeah, thanks for calling. That's interesting. I'm, uh, I haven't had the uh, opportunity to um, uh, do anything with a nipple that's been pierced. So I just have no experience in this, and I'm very interested So in uh, what people get out of it. Anyway, so she said it made her feel better, and her husband said he liked it better, and she had him removed anyway. So there's a story in there somewhere. Hey, Steve. My name is Matt, and uh, I am an overweight person, and I am getting some swelling in my uh, ankles, my lower leg, and my ankles get a little puffy, like above where my shoe kind of cuts that off. It just kind of swells up, and it's basically just seems like it's just fluid. And I'm just sort of wondering if you could uh, kind of go into what causes that, and what the hell am I going to do? All right. Um, so swelling ankles can be caused by a lot of things. In otherwise healthy people, very often it's bad veins, and that can be genetic. And so you look at your mother, father, grandparents, see if they had big legs too. Uh, The hydrodynamics of the veins in the legs 
are such that, um, you know, there's very little back pressure to push blood back to the heart. So uh, those veins coming up your leg that you can see have valves in them. The big ones do anyway. And uh, so blood can only go in one direction. But you've got um, the, the back pressure that there is from blood being pushed out of the heart through the aorta to the little arteries and then the capillaries and then through the capillary bed and then reconstituting back into a, uh, uh, you know, a vein on the other end of that, uh, trying to get blood back to the heart. Um, there, there are competing pressures. One is if you're standing, there is the uh, pull of gravity. So there's the force of gravity that is pulling the blood down and then the body is through these valves and contracting muscles and stuff and the little back pressure that there is trying to push blood back up. And what that ends up producing is tension on the vein wall and it pushes it out, right? So you got something pushing down, something pushing up. You're going to have tension on the wall pushing the uh, – trying to distend the vein. And that's all well and good as long as the vein can maintain its integrity. And when it can't, what happens is, is the vein wall expands to the point where those uh, valves can no longer, you know, keep blood from flowing backwards and it, the blood will rush backward and uh, will distend the vein causing a varicose vein. And uh, over time, the body will re-equilibrate. In other words, the flow will continue up to the heart. It just won't be uh, helped by the vein's uh, valves. And uh, because there's so much pressure on the, on the vein wall, um, water and other f- clear fluids, usually clear, can sort of leach out between these sort of stretch-to-the-max uh, vein walls that are just cells, right? So the little junctures uh, are not big enough to let a red blood cell through, but they're big enough to let water molecules through, and you'll get puffy legs. So that's one way. Uh, Venous insufficiency would be the term we would use in that regard. Uh, But there's one clue that you gave me, and I have nothing else to go on other than you said you were overweight. Now, overweight people often can have sleep apnea from obstructive sleep apnea. And if that goes on long enough, they can get puffy legs as well due to uh, increased pressures in uh, the right heart trying to pump blood to the lungs to get oxygenated. Now, why does that happen? Well, there's this mechanism in the lung where if you get a a piece of lung that's no longer getting uh, uh, blood flow, it will just shut down. It will, it will constrict the, the vessels in that area to shunt blood around there because you don't want to um, try to send blood to an area of the lung that's no longer functioning. So there's a, there's a survival mechanism. You get something in your lung or whatever, for whatever reason that part of the lung is no longer functioning, the blood vessels will constrict to shunt blood around that area and go to other parts of the lung that are functioning. Well, what the hell happens when the whole lung isn't functioning properly? Then it's still going to constrict those vessels, but now there's no place to shunt the blood to. And uh, and, and this and this occurs in sleep apnea because you're not uh, you're not breathing, and so your oxygen level is decreasing. The uh, oxygen level in the alveoli, you know, the little uh, 
uh, pockets, um, the little balloon-like uh, pockets in the lung that transmit oxygen from the outside to the inside and carbon dioxide from the inside to the outside. Uh, the oxygen level will decrease and the lungs – uh, interpret that as, uh-oh, this part of the lung isn't working, but it happens over the whole lung. And so and when you constrict the blood vessels to the whole lung, now as the right heart is trying to pump blood, you know, vein, venous blood to the lung to get oxygenated, it has increased pressure. It's got to pump harder. And when it has to pump harder, it starts backing up. And when it backs up, what happens? You get increased pressure in those veins that are trying to supply this backed-up heart, and you'll get puffy legs again. It's called um, right heart failure, uh, or um, uh, but caused by uh, pulmonary hypertension. So, in other words, high blood pressure in the pulmonary artery. Uh, uh, if taken to the extreme, we'll call this Pickwickian syndrome. And uh, this, these are folks that need. Um, a sleep study ASAP and they need their obstructive sleep apnea treated right now. And uh, it is uh, to a certain extent reversible if you don't let it go too long. You sound pretty young on the phone. I just get checked. Make sure that that's not, you know, if it's just venous insufficiency, it's fine. But, um, you know, you need to lose weight anyway. It may give you an impetus to do that. And in the meantime, you can do the sleep um, apnea treatment would be CPAP or BiPAP. And if you lose the weight and you want to try going off of it, you have another sleep study done. It's no big deal. But that could significantly prolong your life if that's what it is. So I like talking about the physiology of that. So that's why I went into in-depth uh, 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 analysis of this situation. I don't know for a, at, at all that's what you have. But I would get this checked. Um, any um, swelling of the legs, a.k.a peripheral edema uh, warrants a um, um, trip to your healthcare provider when you first notice it. Okay, dope. All right. Hi, Dr. Steve. I've got a question about um, phlegm. I uh, ran a 5K last Sunday morning, and it was, it was about um, 45, 50 degrees out. And I, I woke up, I had a cup of tea and some water, and during the race, I was running at full speed, um, but I had a lot of phlegm um, that I've never ex experienced this before, and um, I, I can't I can't narrow it down. I'm not ill, um, I, I, you know, no indications like that. Um, I, I had the only thing I can think of is that I had a, a little bit of dairy the night before, but I thought that it would have been processed by the morning. Um, so I'm just you know coughing and spinning up uh, through the whole race, but I was wondering. Where does the phlegm come from? Is it in my lungs? Is it in my digestive system? Is it uh, anything I can take to cut that down um, when I when I am running at full speed? I uh, just wonder about your thoughts. I couldn't find anything online to, to help me out. Okay, yeah, it's a great question. Um, so the the there's a lot of reasons that you can get phlegm when you're running, and particularly if you're running in cold weather because you're just you know your mouth breathing and your mucous membranes are drying out and they're trying to, to fix that and so they just produce more mucus. So it may simply be that. However, um, you could also have exercise-induced asthma and sometimes that can just come up out of nowhere. This You could have had a cold that day. Uh, could have been allergens in the air that were uh, uh, bugging you and it'll never happen again. Uh, could have just been the time of uh, year. 
and uh, you, you ran into a cloud of some uh, antigens that your body didn't like and it produced an allergic reaction. If this happens a lot, and that's what it is, sometimes running on a, uh, a non-drowsy antihistamine is the way to go. But get checked to make sure you don't have exercise-induced asthma from your primary because um, th- that's something that's easy to treat and should be treated. Okay. Well, look, I'm out of time. Talk about phlegm. I had to stop recording this show about six times because uh, I was having coughing fits and stuff. So, But anyway, thanks for hanging in there with me. Uh, we can't forget Rob Sprantz, Bob Kelly, Greg Hughes, Anthony Cumia, Jim Norton, Travis Teft, Eric Nagel, Roland Campos, uh, Hugh Jassol. Hello. Hello, Bob from Florida. Sam Roberts, Pat Duffy, Dennis Falcone, uh, Eton Twats. Uh, Fez Watley, Ron Bennington, and uh, the rest of the crew whose early support of the show has never gone unappreciated. And I do so love Riley Martin and miss him greatly. Listen to our SiriusXM show on the Faction Talk channel, SiriusXM channel 103, Saturdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, Sunday at 5 p.m. Eastern, on demand, and other times at uh, Jim McClure's Pleasure. Many thanks to our listeners whose voicemail and topic ideas make this job very easy. Go to our website at drsteve.com for schedules, podcasts, and other crap. Until next time, check your stupid nuts for lumps, quit smoking, get off your asses, and get some exercise. We'll see you in one week for the next edition of Weird Medicine.